hello. Thank you so much for joining us today for this policy briefing on from law to learning. How do we implement the school choice revolution? And there's been a lot of interest in this topic, judging by the pre-registrations, which makes sense given the explosion that we've had in ESAs the last few years. Uh, the latest count, there's 13 states that have some form of an ESA program, six of which are universal or nearly universal. So I suspect that most of you are familiar with ESAs, but just in case there's any newbies, I thought a quick little overview might be helpful. Um, you probably know that every state in the nation mandates public education that started in around the, the mid-1800s. And even longer than that, there have been calls for public funding of different options beyond just you know, the local district school. In 1955, Milton Friedman coined the, uh, came up with the idea of an education voucher or school voucher. And that was a way to give people a choice of different schools. So you could have school A, school B, school C. But nowadays, I think there's more of a recognition that there's options outside of schools and maybe one school is good for certain subjects and another for other subjects. And that's where education savings accounts really come in. With an education savings account, parents get a portion of the state funding that they can use for a variety of education purposes. Each state's program is a little bit different, but typically things like private school tuition, online classes, tutoring, curriculum, some do transportation, some even do a la carte classes at public schools. So it no longer has to be a choice between A, B, and C. It can be a little from A, a little from B, and a little from something altogether different. Uh, this actually Milton Friedman kind of came up with this idea too. And I think around 1995, he talked about a partial voucher, uh, recognizing that some kids' needs aren't going to be met in one specific school. So with the explosion that we've had in recent years, now a lot of attention, of course, is turning to implementation. Because it's one thing to pass legislation to create a program, and that, that's a very hard thing. But where the rubber really meets the road is in the implementation. And if states don't do a good job with this, then that's going to harm future efforts to expand school choice even broad, more broadly. So I'm really happy today to be joined with us by a stellar panel. We've got Mike McShane, who's Director of Research at the aforementioned EdChoice, and he has a recent paper out that he co-authored on ESA implementation. Jenny Clark, who founded Love Your School in Arizona and has helped thousands of parents navigate the complexities of the ESA program there. And Robert Begley, who is chair of the board for Utah Fits All, where they're just getting their work underway in order to get their ESA up and running. Hoping for a lively discussion today, you can submit questions via the webpage, Facebook, YouTube, and on Twitter using the hashtag CatoCEF. So we're gonna start the conversation off with Mike McShane. Awesome. Thank you so much, Colleen. Thanks to everybody at the Cato Institute for putting this uh, on a super important topic. We're at an incredible moment in the history of the education choice movement. Um, if <laughs> an incredible, if perilous one, we'll get back to that in a moment, but I want to start from a space. If we think about, um, you know, uh, I work for EdChoice, which has been in existence for just over 25 years now. We're the legacy foundation of Milton and Rose Friedman. So if we think about the work that you know Milton Friedman did starting in the 50s, but even organizations like ours that are a quarter century old and all of the constellation of other organizations, including the Cato Institute and others that have been kind of laboring in the fields of educational choice for the last few decades, um, I think we just have to start from an incredible place of gratitude. I'm so thankful we stand on the shoulders of giants 
so many people who will, whose names may never even be known um, have worked so hard for so long to get us to this place that, that we're at right now. And, and so what is this place? You know, over the course of just the last few months, Though we do have to, since Jenny is here, we do have to give Arizona credit as being a sort of first mover here, as well as our friends in West Virginia, who first really pushed for these sort of universal ESA programs. Um, but through the sort of, I've been watching, I don't know if you guys have been watching on Netflix, the quarterback uh, documentary that they've been doing. So I have like football on the brain right now. But if I think of there, the sort of uh, offensive line creating the hole for my man, Patrick Mahomes, go, go Chiefs, to, to run through. And so the Chiefs that are running through now in, in Arkansas and in Iowa and in Utah and in Florida and all these other states across, uh, across the country that are pushing for this uh, and are really um, going full spectrum educational choice, which is super exciting. And I think this just incredible opportunity to provide children with a, a type of education, a variety of educational opportunities, that heretofore was not possible in this country. I think it's so cool. And, and, and again, I, I, it's hard for me to start from any other feeling other than gratitude. Um, but as I mentioned at the beginning, this is a momentous uh, moment, but it is a perilous one in the sense that these programs, in some ways, folks are doing what we've asked them to do. <laughs> folks like me have been saying, hey guys, we really need to, to do this and these opportunities are available. That's the sort of starting point, but now these programs need to be implemented. And anyone who's on this call that has even a passing dirty with the education reform movement in its many knows that Tayton is a place where uh, these programs uh, stall out, where there's great excitement, bills passed, and there's all sorts of, of interest in, in the legislative signing. But then when the rubber actually meets the road, and this happened in, in, in any number of different areas, um, that's where the, the sort of interest kind of peters out. And then these programs get watered down, they get co-opted, they, they don't end up delivering on their promise. Um, so I'm really excited to be talking with you all today, um, keeping this idea of implementation at the center of educational choice conversations, because that's the, the time uh, that's happening now. So Colleen very kindly referenced a paper that I wrote recently with Nicole Garnett of uh, the University of Notre Dame's law school. And I wanna just very, very briefly go over the kind of arguments that, that we made in that paper, which is we highlighted five areas that when we're talking about implementing educational choice programs that whether it's the state education agency, whether it's local advocates, whether it's legislators, whether it's schools themselves, need to really be thinking about over the course of the next 12 to, to 18 months. So the first is that parents need to be informed about their options. You know, polling that we've done at EdChoice over the years has shown that oftentimes in states, parents don't know that they're eligible for programs. They don't know the programs exist. Oftentimes they're passed or, or talked about by people like us who really care about these things and follow all of the, the minutiae of things that are happening. But most people are just going about their lives. And so they don't necessarily know that, that these programs are available to them, or they think, surely I don't qualify for that, or, or for whatever reason, they don't know that it's possible. So it's really important. And that's something that states can do. It's something advocates can do. It's something nonprofit organizations and others can all get involved in, something schools themselves can do. But I think it's really important on this side. and. States also need to take the important effort of explaining to parents um, what they can and also what they cannot do with their ESAs. 
Um, now this could take the form of things like handbooks. It can take the form of webinars. It could be imperfect tr in-person trainings. I think probably the answer is some combination of all of the above, but really educating parents about what they can spend their ESA dollars on. I think there is a concern in some ways, I think, uh, an overblown concern, but there's there's a concern out there that parents are going to misspend these dollars, that they're going to spend, they're going to use their ESA dollars on things that they're not supposed to. Spend them on. Well, the first to prevent that thing to parents, what they can and can't spend their money on. It seems like from many of the cases, there's some of the cases that I've heard about here, um, for example, it's out of ignorance, not out of malice. Right? It wasn't people that were like trying to commit fraud. They just weren't clear. Maybe the state wasn't clear with them. Or unsure what's going on. I think one of the best things that states can do is just be crystal clear. And again, do sort of multiple can people Okay, so it looks like Mike's maybe trainings um, internet is... Mike, you're skipping a little bit, so uh, maybe we'll pause for a second and turn to Jenny for a minute and see if you can get it back up and a little bit more clear. I think Mike's coming to us from across the pond, so we will forgive him for that. Um, so Jenny, maybe you could take the baton now and just talk a little bit about your first person experience, both as a parent using the ESA and then as a, a founder of a group that's helping other parents and providers navigate this. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much, Colleen and Cato, for having me on today. It's always very exciting to talk about empowerment scholarships, education savings accounts, um, and the impact that they have for families, students, and in our communities. So it's been my pleasure to support families navigating um, the ESA program here in Arizona. Since around 2018, all five of my children have benefited from an ESA, um, and I've had the opportunity to work on the ground both uh, during two different referral attempts here in Arizona. The first one, of course, was successful stopping our universal ESA. Uh, this last one, of course, was unsuccessful, and that brought our state truly universal ESA access, including to uh, current homeschool families here in Arizona for the first time. Um, so a few different things similar um, to, uh, to what Mike had mentioned about um, things on the ground that we want, that I want other states to know, um, other folks that are involved in ESAs to be aware of when we're talking about ESA implementation. And the first one that's probably the most important to parents but often is getting overlooked is that flexibility piece. These programs, they've got to be flexible for families so that they can actually utilize uh, their scholarship dollars. And that means, you know, for educational items, for tutors, for therapists, and not just private school tuition. More and more families in Arizona and across the U.S. are unbundling their kids' education, right? They're taking this class over here, this curriculum over here, this tutor and this therapy program over here. They need the flexibility to utilize their scholarship dollars in the ways that meet their child's unique needs. Um, another thing with flexibility is having multiple flexible payment options for families. In Arizona, we've had uh, the pleasure of having uh, two different types of uh, 
HSA scholarship type cards, right? Where we can access our child's dollars, their scholarship dollars with a card. And that flexibility piece is the most used for parents who are home educating or unbundling their child's education. Not everyone gets one of those cards. And it's one of the best ways that we can access those dollars, pay our vendors and pay our tutors. So whether it's flexibility about items that families can uh, spend their scholarship dollars on or the ways that we utilize the program, I really wanna emphasize flexibility as being a really key point. Uh, communication is one of the big ones that I put on here, but Mike already hit on that. So I'll jump down to something that we tend to not talk as much about, but it's a big issue for families on the ground and that's special education. So special education programs, services, evaluations, um, options, and even schools, this should really be at the front of your mind for your state. One in five kids has a learning disability in reading. One in 36 kids are diagnosed with autism. And so a question that you could ask yourself as you're thinking about ESA implementation in your state is does your state have very, very clear support systems in place to ensure that parents know how to get those evaluations? Do you have private philanthropy dollars? Do you have you know, state-sponsored options? A lot of families choose these programs because their child's education is not really working for them in a traditional public school environment, district or charter, have you? So having options for them and making sure that they can transition easily to something like an ESA, um, whether it's they already have a diagnosis or they need to get a diagnosis is really, really important. And I'm just gonna do a little plug here right now too, that it's something that private schools need to be thinking about. Private schools need to understand how they can create inclusion, inclusive environments for special needs students. How can they create and expand what they're currently offering to meet the needs of those students um, who are are leaving some of these more traditional environments because they weren't they weren't working um, and kind of the last thing I'll hit on and then I'll, I'll throw it back to you Colleen is just making sure that we are creating a knowledge base in our state really bringing on those parents those highly skilled parent leaders in your state or even in your state government that know how to take families from hey I need something else you know for my student all the way to we found a school or a solution that works for us. So in Arizona, I just got to give a shout out to Arizona ESA families. They are the most knowledgeable people when it comes to um, knowing how to navigate that process for families that are looking for something different. So in Arizona, you know, we've had our program for 10 years. It just went universal. Two parents 10 years ago created this incredible ESA families Facebook group, and it became the place to go to when you had questions about you know, how to navigate your child's education, how to get a diagnosis, how to utilize the ESA effectively. We've got to be taking these parents that have already been doing these things on the ground, utilizing their knowledge and bringing them into the conversation when it comes to implementation. Those are, those are great points, Jenny, thanks. And I think we're gonna shift back to Mike real quick so he can finish up. You know, hopefully his connection's we're, working out a little better now. We're gonna try. Of course, this is always the thing that happens that we're talking before this, everything works perfectly fine. The second you hit go live, it's like, oh, that's when the internet decides to stop working. So um, isn't that the way that it goes? I think everyone's used to it by now though. So. 
right? Good. Well, I will be brief because uh, I have this now external pressure that could cut out at any moment. So anyway, so to just cut to the chase, I said there are five areas that we said you should care about. The first one is parent information. The second one, it's actually Jenny, um, I think, teed this up very well, was thinking from the school's perspective, how schools respond to this. Um, it's an incredible opportunity for schools. And I think they have lots of examples of schools that do things like offer part-time or a la carte options that are out there saying, listen, you may not participate in this where you have schools uh, or children attend full-time five days a week, um, but you, you might just open up your math classes or have students come one day a week. There's all sorts of cool stuff that you could be doing there. So I think it's an opportunity for schools that even though they may be more traditionally oriented now, have the opportunity to do other things and they should be thinking um, about that. The third, this is the part where stuff gets exciting, um, regulations. Um, you know, regulators need to thoughtfully and deliberately address the need for, for uh, their regulations. There are lots of really important terms that need to be defined right now. What is curriculum? What are uh, instructional technologies? All of these things matter a great deal if they're allowable uses, or if when we're talking about allowable uses, we say, oh, the, the types of things that parents buy need to be connected to a curriculum. Okay, well, like, what's a curriculum? What classifies as that? How do we how do we think through that? I think is super important. Who gets to determine that? When are those determinations made? And with input from whom? Um, how often can we rethink those? Um, these are all questions that may seem super boring and not important, but can actually make a really big difference in what these programs look like. Number four, um, building off of regulations are policies and procedures. Probably the most important decision that states are making right now, uh, they're putting out RFPs for the organizations that are actually gonna run these programs, like the kind of the payment platforms that will allow parents to pay the various vendors that are participating in ESA programs. These are so, so, so important. We want these things to be as user-friendly as possible, that they can onboard parents easily. Parents can see how much money is sitting in their ESA, that they can easily pay vendors from the vendor side, that they can be paid promptly. Um, these things exist in all other areas of our lives. So we can hope that we can pull that off in, in education now. And I know there are multiple organizations that are bidding for these RFPs that are working through this process, but um, I think it's something that shouldn't necessarily be rushed and people should really think and can kick their programs because I think that ultimately parents are going to give us tons of bites at the apple. Then last, um, which I was the paper for because this is really where Nicole's work was done, but all on the legal side. States and public interest legal advocates need to pre prepare for the inevitable legal challenges. There's some stuff you can do on the front end, more you can do on the back end. I immediately get out of my depth on this. Um, Nicole has forgotten more about this stuff than I will ever know. So I recommend checking out the paper that she and I wrote with the Manitude for all of the, the legal questions. And I think if I got through that relatively unscathed, I'll call that a win and I'll stop there. Perfect, thank you. So we've heard you know, from the research side of things and from Jenny who's been in the trenches for many years. And now Robin is kind of the up and coming, I guess, ESA of the group. And um, she's gonna share what, what she's learning you know, in, as she's working on this right now. So thank you for this opportunity to be part of this discussion. And yes, we are the new feet on the ground trying to figure this out. 
doing the things that Mike has just talked about, doing the things that Jenny's had experience with and very appreciative of all that they bring to the table to help us. I actually have a presentation that I'm going to um, share with you to kind of walk you through. And my desire is not to provide you with a template, but actually just give you an inside view into what we're figuring out. And we're figuring it out as we go, for sure. Um, as many of you know, we are building the plane while we're flying it. That is a statement that one of my board members says all the time. And we truly feel like uh, we're in a little bit of a tenuous situation. This is not our first rodeo um, here in Utah. We are Utah Education Fits All. And all of us who are playing a role right now in implementation have been at this for a long time. But one thing that we haven't done before is implement an ESA. And uh, so what is the challenge? There are a lot of challenges. You heard Mike mention a lot of those challenges and we're just trying to get a jump start and guide many of these variables uh, down the path so that at the end of the day, we are able to serve families and students. So the biggest challenge that we can see are uh, pieces that along the way in the process from the marketing and building awareness to the application process, to addressing customer issues, the marketplace of providers being available and the payment process. As we have reached out uh, to the many folks, both national, the, the various states on how this is going, what are the barriers, what are you discovering? It really is the customer experience from end to end that needs to be our focus. If we can hone in on all of these various pieces and make them um, smooth and workable, then we're going to have um, families finding the best fit for their child. And so as we think about how can we assist in this process, this end to end, and make sure that once our program is implemented, that it goes smoothly for the customer, for the family, for the child. So in order to try to ensure success, here's really where we started. The first thing that you have to have, that is who we are, is a, is a leading voice. And we are not the program manager. The reason you need a leading voice in an advocacy group is to really pave the way on all of these items and be involved in multiple ways, which I'll share in another slide here in just a second. But um, you need someone who's going to step up to the plate and be that voice that brings the coalition together, that speaks for the movement, and that becomes the voice for the parent. Mike mentioned that um, you know parents don't know if they actually are going to qualify for this. Many parents don't even know it exists. And then even once they figure it out, they're not sure how they can use it. So our job is to do all the jobs of the voice of the program. And it's very important as well to have a coalition. In Utah, we were fortunate because we brought all of these people together to get the bill passed. We've been working together for a very long time, but it's important to coalesce your friends. You don't need um, to be working against friends. You know, you have enough enemies. So bring the friends together and unite and figure out how you can help one another and organize yourself. Because truly in this moment, we know that all eyes are on every state who has passed one of these education savings accounts. They're watching to see if, if we're going to fail and many of them are hoping we do. We've got to prove them wrong. So I've thrown up here on this slide, just uh, basically our strategy of um, topics that we've had to hone in on and uh, prepare a business plan or a business strategy. And the first one would be, we had to identify our timeline. Every state is different. 
some are rushing through this very quickly and it's remarkable to see the things that they're doing in states like like iowa i've got something my uh <laughs> one of those technology issues i've got siri trying to talk to me right now so let's ignore her for a minute <laughs> sorry about that Anyway, um, we in our state, we've got a long runway, but what we don't have is a program manager that's being selected right away. Our program manager isn't going to be selected until almost the end of the year. And then the legislation requires the portal for applications to open in March. And so there's a lot to be done between now and then. They have a very small window to carry out all of the things that we can do for them. So next, we had to establish our goals. And I'll just give you some insight into what we've decided here in Utah. Because the program manager won't be selected until the end of the year, we have decided to have a pre-apply campaign. And we want to have 20,000 families apply for the scholarship in a pre-application so that we can do three things. We want to, first of all, help the program manager by coalescing families, educating them, and getting their information so that they're ready to go into that portal right away. Second, we want to demonstrate demand to our legislature to show them that parents want this. They're excited that we actually have less funding than we have demand. And third, potentially be allowed to go to the legislature in the next session and ask them to consider increasing the amount of money to serve all of these parents. So we've set our goals and then we gather our resources. And um, I'm gonna get into that in the next slide. And then we have done a lot of work educating ourselves. If I can give a recommendation to any state, it is to take on that fire hose and just be fed with it. You have so much to learn. The national groups uh, have really come together around this issue and they are tr a tremendous resource. You need to talk to anyone and everyone so talk to the national folks, talk to the states that are doing it. There are states that have figured out grassroots, they have figured out marketing campaigns, they understand what the barriers are and the sticking points. You know, I've had conversations with Jenny and I'll have many more with her because they've been through this. They know what the sticking points are. Florida is another great state, Indiana. We've talked to them all. And not only that, we've also talked to providers because providers, are learning what's not working and how they're being prevented from serving families. And then of course, learn the stories of families. So educate yourself and then, you know, really just get to work. So we have a very big to-do list and I'm not gonna go through all of it, but just to give you an idea how we're trying to prepare the way for this program manager, for this program to be implemented as an advocacy group, as the voice for this movement. And the first thing we had to do was get out there and fundraise. And again, there's a lot of support out there, both within your state and nationally. And you've got to fundraise so that you can carry out the work that you're going to need to do. Once again, I'm just going to reiterate, network, network, network. That's always the key in business. That's the key in anything successful. You've got to get out there and talk to everyone. The more you're networked, the more assistance you'll get, the more understanding. Um, just talk to everybody. And then what we're doing, as I, as I shared, is our program manager is going to have a very tiny window before the application portal opens. So we are doing a direct marketing campaign. And so we want to build awareness. We want parents to know it's out there. We want to help them understand. 
Part of our campaign is grassroots. That's very critical. Uh, feet on the ground. We have a stipulation in our law that the low income will get the first seats. It's universal, but the low income will receive the first seats. So we're, we've got a very organized grassroots campaign with our uh, private schools association and our Catholic schools who have a, a, a tremendous reach into that population. And um, for us, the goal will be conversions and pre-applications. So again, we can carry out those three aspects of our goal that I shared with you. And as Mike talked about, there are so many pieces to this. And as an advocacy organization or a voice in the movement, you can play a role in helping to steer and guide. There are some things you don't have control over, but there are a lot of things where you can play a role. So currently we are as involved as we can be in the RFP process and monitoring the rulemaking as well. And then we're also being a support and a resource, not only for families and parents, that's a no brainer, but for potential program managers and vendors. When we talk about the RFP in our state, we will have a program manager. The DOE will not run the program. So we have got our ear to the ground. We know everybody who's interested right now. We talk to them regularly. We try to give them equal attention and information and just be the biggest help that we can. And there are platforms that many of us in the movement are aware of now. There are specific platforms that want to be the ones who are the online tool for running this. In the beginning of my slides, I talked about end-to-end. -end. Well, that end-to-end -end from the application process um, all the way through to the programs uh, and, uh, I mean, providers being listed to payment being made, there are platforms that want to be the services to handle this. So we've got to know them and we've interviewed them. And by doing that, we have a better understanding of where the gaps are, what is needed, who is really good at one thing and good at another. This, this is all helping us to help policymakers and to help potential program managers. So, and speaking of that, we talked to future providers. Um, one of the aspects that I think that nobody's talking about as much as they should, these programs get stood up, they get implemented, they're up and running, and we don't have a marketplace of providers. It's very simple, and many of us have been involved in school choice policies that provide choice for private schools. That's easy, that's not the hard part. But what we have here is a situation where families can customize with so many different options. And when they come into the program and accept a scholarship, if we have not prepared a way for them to see the marketplace, to see the potential and make it easy for them to find providers, then we failed them. So I would encourage everyone to put a lot of energy into that. We're going to put a lot of energy into it. We're still figuring out how to do it and would love help from anyone, but we are going to do it. And then of course, being a resource for policymakers, continuing to talk to your bill sponsors and those who have the clout and the ability to steer this in the right direction, be a resource for them, stay close to them. I think that's a no brainer as well for any of us who've been involved in policy is to, is to stay connected to your policymakers and become a resource in ways that, um, you know, before they were the ones passing the bill. And now uh, we don't, we didn't know what we don't know, right? There's so much that when we pass a bill, there's unintended consequences. There's things we didn't think through. As we go out and network and gather this information, we can help policymakers think about specifics that maybe they didn't think about before. 
And then there are plenty of other stakeholders out there. Um, and then provider outreach and collection, I've touched on that. Um, policy and advocacy, it never ends, as you know. I mean, we already have a cleanup bill uh, in the works right now. And so you need to be a part of that. There are definitely things that need to be cleaned up. That also opens the door for those who don't love this policy to try to put things in to maybe hamper it or cause difficulty. And so you have to stay on top of that as well. And then the final thing that I just put on there is another no-brainer, storytelling. All through this process, tell the stories of these families. That's how we got the law passed. That's how we'll get it implemented successfully is really to tell their stories. And I think another thing that we all need to address is that in this process, in any good process, in any invention or creation, we fail forward. So as I wrote there, remember, all processes are iterative as we seek to discover the best solutions. We, we have to admit we're going to have some stumbles. We've already seen some of them, but that's part of the process and that's what you need to articulate. We just pick ourselves up and we figure it out. So finally, the last thing that I would say is that we will consider that we have implemented our law successfully when every Utah child has found their fit. So um, I hope you enjoyed our little slides there as well. That is our branding. That's another thing you have to do. We've, we found an incredible firm to help us. And so you've been exposed to a little bit of our branding, but I hope that was helpful. And you know, thanks for your time. And I look forward to any questions that you may have. Thanks, Robin. So don't forget, we are getting a lot of questions in, but you can submit your questions through our website, through Facebook or YouTube, and on Twitter using the hashtag CatoCEF. So please keep them coming. Um, more political type of questions, I probably will skip. So maybe don't send those, but we're looking at the policies and the procedures and the implementation of ESAs, not the background politics of why or why not things get passed. So there's and also kind of group questions when they are of a similar um, subject. And we've gotten quite a few already on kids with special needs. Um, Jenny, you specifically had touched on this. Um, so here's one asking on Arizona. How does the Arizona program allow parents to get specific services for specific special ed needs? Kids with ASD, Down syndrome, or an ID are not all the same, and the students need specialized resources even though such students get lumped together in generic special ed classrooms? Question, uh, because a big percentage of the families that we help at Love Your School are school. either looking for a diagnosis or they have a child that has a diagnosis. Um, so in Arizona, our ESA is on a scale. So if your child has a qualifying um, disability, their ESA funding can go up. And so in Arizona, if your child has an autism diagnosis and you get the appropriate paperwork to um, show that eligibility for our state's ESA program, your ESA award, which again is only 90% of the state funding, is about $30,000 per year. And families find that they are able to craft a very robust um, education program for their children that includes a lot of different um, therapies and specialized programming. 
So the um, if a family's home educating on an ESA, then they're taking on the responsibility to craft out what that education might be looking like, let's say for their child with a um, autism diagnosis. If they are choosing a specialized private school, then they can work with the private school to decide, you know, what is their tuition covering there? What services are they actually getting at the private school? So in Arizona, a lot of what we do is utilize those really wonderful Facebook groups like I talked about. So we've got several of them now. Love Your School has a Facebook group. Um, there's some amazing organizations in Arizona, autism associations, SARC and others, where families can connect, learn about the service providers that are out there for whatever it is that their child may need, whether it's ABA therapy, RDI, um, social speech therapy, all these different things. And then they're able to utilize their empowerment scholarship to pay for those specialized therapies. And one of the reasons why a lot of families do tend to jump on an ESA, let's say with an autism diagnosis, is because they feel like they can do more with their ESA dollars than maybe what their child was getting in a traditional school environment. So that's a little bit about how it looks in Arizona. We really work with those families to find a community and to also find those providers um, in, in different networks so they can serve their child. Right, and that, you hear that all the time where parents a lot of times are choosing the ESA specifically for that reason, for the specialization that they can do, the customization they can do. So it, it's always a little bit peculiar to me when people think that ESAs are gonna make it harder to, to deal with kids with special needs because it makes it I mean, that's, um, that's really what they were designed for. The very first programs, that's what they were aimed for. Um, Robin, how does Utah do special needs? Is there, is there a bump up in funding for different diagnoses? So it's interesting that you asked that, Colleen, because we have another program. We passed an ESA three years ago that was just for special needs. And um, that one has funding that starts around 8,000 and goes up to about 10,500. We also have uh, the Carson Smith Special Needs Scholarship, which is one of the oldest scholarships in the nation. And that one does provide more funding. That one's based on your IEP and your hours assigned. And so some of those students do get upwards of $15,000, $16,000. What Arizona has is incredible. Now, with the ESA that we just passed, that will be a flat amount of $8,000. So if you're opting into that one, that's the amount of money that you'll have to work with. Otherwise, there are the two other special needs programs that you could apply for. And I think this brings us, you know, it's a good segue into a question that one of the, somebody asked, um, I don't actually know what platform they were on, but what happens when the ESA vouchers are not enough to cover the total educational cost? And Mike, maybe you can help us with that one. Sure. I mean, I think ESAs give us this opportunity to really give a hard think to what we mean when we say the cost to educate a student, because frankly, right now, like we actually don't know how much it costs to educate a child, right? Like we know how much we spend, but how much we spend on something and how much it costs is not necessarily the same thing. It reminds me sort of, as Colleen mentioned, I live in Ireland. It's just a fun fact about me. Maybe that explains the, the wonky internet as it happens. But um, I was looking to get some work done on a bathroom in my house. And so I brought somebody out to say, hey, you know, I want to get these things done. Or what does it cost to get a bathroom redone? To which he responded in a delightfully Irish way, um, well, how long is a piece of string? 
right? Because it's how much something costs is like, well, what type of fittings do you want? What do you want? Do you want to move stuff around or whatever? There is no one answer to that. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to educating children. Well, what do we want to do? What type of environment do we want students to be in? Um, and because we have these opportunities to offer classes, things like a la carte or full-time or part-time or whatever, um, I think, now look, I think there's going to be a kind of an adjustment period here, right? Because we do have some schools now that set certain tuition amounts and others, and they've calculated their inputs and whatever, and that's that's come out that way. And it's true that in some places that the the amount of money that's going into ESAs, if we just look at the existing stock of schools, may not meet that. But there's more than meets the eye to that too. I come from a Catholic school background. Um, you know, we taught uh, uh, students who couldn't afford, actually attended um, Catholic schools and could not afford to go to them in my own family. And so I received, I did work grant or I worked off part of the tuition or I received scholarships. And if you think, you know, private schools have been doing that forever. And what you had was that cost to educate a child was in some part borne by tuition that families paid oftentimes on a sliding scale based on how much money they had. And the rest had to be offset by fundraising. Well, now, I mean, like in some ways that's just, you can bring in ESA dollars to that, right? So schools might have to fundraise to make up the rest of the cost of education, but that's not something new. That's some private schools have been doing for a very long time. So I think in some ways, this conversation, what happens is maybe some people who are skeptical of these programs look at well, here's what the tuition of these schools are as it exists now. Here's how much is in the voucher or in the ESA. If that ESA figure is less, that means that students won't be able to go to those schools. And I don't think that that's true. And I think that we actually have plenty of evidence that schools whose you know sticker price or tuition price is more than those admit students in private school choice programs around the country all the time. Um, so, um, so I think there's lots of ways of looking at that, that you have... Um, definitely a rethinking of cost that's going to happen. Um, you have lots of different ways in which education might be provided that's gonna sort of change the way that we look at cost, but then also the ways that education is paid for now, private education is paid for now, um, is more than meets the eye for, for most people. So I think those are ways that, that, that that's gonna intersect. Very true, and that brings to mind for me, uh, Something that on the kind of on the flip side, people often talk about a fear that school choice and specifically education savings accounts will or vouchers will drive up the cost of private school tuition. And I think one of the great features that many of the ESA programs have is the rollover, where year to year, if you don't use all of your ESA funds, it rolls over. So in elementary school, it's usually less expensive than high school. So maybe you're saving dollars that you can use for high school and some even allow you to use them for college after high school. So I think that you're kind of on the flip side of that concern, will there be enough money is, will it drive up costs? And I think that the roller provisions are a great way to avoid that. Um, so staying on the funding topic, someone asks, Arizona currently does not have a cap on the amount of funding going into ESAs. What are just a few of the pros and cons of not limiting the total amount of funding going to the scholarships? And what do you all see happening going forward as more states adopt ESAs? So I don't know who wants to jump in there. I can take the first part of that. So in Arizona, funding follows the student, right? That's always been the case, even in the public school environment. You know, if your child goes to uh, one private or public school, district school, and then the next year you decide as a parent to open enroll them into another district school, 
guess what? The funding follows the student. And so the same thing is true for the Arizona ESA program. So, uh, you know, not to be blunt about it, but if a, you know, if a child is no longer enrolled in a public school, well, then of course the public school is released from the, um, the obligation of educating that child. So you don't, you don't receive funding for a student that's not in your classroom that you're not educating. The funding follows that student to the environment. That's the best fit for that student. And I love how Robin put that too, the best fit for them. And so the same thing is true with ESA. I don't know uh, why we would ever want to cap um, the expenses for a program like an ESA and what we're investing in a child and their education, especially when a program like an ESA, when a child leaves a um, public school system for a different environment, and maybe the family chooses ESA for a year or two or longer, that the state is actually saving money in Arizona's case. So every time a child um, you know, accepts an empowerment scholarship in Arizona, that's only 90% of the state funds. Um, a lot of the other dollars, like the local dollars, stay at the public school system. So that's where in Arizona, you know, I would, I would never personally support a cap because if there's a student, that student deserves funding for their education. It's kind of a bonus, actually, as an Arizona taxpayer, if um, the funding that that uh, family is choosing actually also saves the state and saves taxpayers. Very true. And that answers one of the other questions on here, which is where is the funding coming from state money from some form of tax revenue? And yes, most of the ESA programs that exist now are state funded. Some of them, there are a few tax credit ESAs, which is a little bit different where donors receive tax credits in exchange for their contributions to um, education, to scholarship organizations that then administer the education savings accounts. But most of them are with the state education dollars. So here is a little getting off of the funding part of things. What do you say to those of us who are concerned about ESA funding of a private school education that includes religious indoctrination and its curriculum? And maybe Mike wants that one since he mentioned his Catholic school background. So and people people are worried. It's all good. So it, it's people are worried about money going to religious schools. That's 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 their right. concern. Indoctrination. Um, I, you know, I think indoctrination is a little strong. I mean, in some ways, it's funny. You were talking about going to Catholic schools. The, if Catholic schools are indoctrinating, they're not doing a particularly good job of it. They right? really you aren't. Know, how many people go to Catholic schools and it's like, you know, when they're adults, it's like, are they taking on, uh, you know, every um, jot and tittle of Catholic doctrine? Like, I don't really think so. So I think that's the first step is that um, I think the belief, if you, if you, take things away from educational psychology or the way that schools, obviously schools work to influence children, but children have lots of influences in all around their lives. And the thought that um, any schools, and it's, it's actually kind of ironically could also be a sort of critique of, of some traditional public schooling where this whole idea was, if you go back to the Horace Mann and the common school movement, the thought was, hey, these schools are going to be able to inculcate these civic values. What do we do? Like, yeah. Maybe that didn't work out necessarily so hot either. To me, I consider myself a committed pluralist. And what pluralism means is that we live in a big, diverse country with people who think lots of different things, who believe lots of different things, who look differently from one another. And the only way that we can make this work is by respecting our fellow citizens and giving them the space to believe what they believe, think what they think, pray to whom they wish to pray to, and raise their children the way that they want to, and trust 
and implore our fellow citizens to do the same thing to us. Um, and I think that when you're a pluralist, you are constantly, well, what about those people? What about those people that nobody likes or that I don't like? And sure, part of being plur a, a pluralist and part of believing in, in the, the great strength of the diversity of our country is that oftentimes that means people are going to teach their kids stuff that I wouldn't teach my kids. Um, people are going to believe things that I, I think are wrong. Um, but the only way that this whole thing works is if we have a little bit of humility um, and a, a, a belief in uh, our fellow citizens and, and a trust that over the long term, by giving people the space to believe what they want to believe and to think what they want to think and to raise their children accordingly, that will lead to a much stronger um, sort of democratic polity than if we try to enforce any one sort of viewpoint on everybody. Right. And I mean, that's an interesting part of the whole question is I think a lot of people don't realize that public schools originally were religious. They were Protestant. And some of the very earliest fights about public education in America were between Protestants and Catholics because a lot of times they were very anti-Catholic. There were waves of immigrants coming from Ireland, Mike, <laughs> as well as other countries and bringing it, you know, it just changed the dynamics of the country. And so those were some of the very earliest fights. And if, if you're interested in knowing how public school itself is kind of results in a lot of these battles, the Cato Institute has a public schooling battleground map where we track this. And it's, it's not something that's new. It goes back to the very beginnings of public education in America. And so it's you know, letting people choose their religious indoctrination is just going to cause less fights than putting everybody in the same indoctrination as some people would say the public schools are today. So um, it's letting people choose instead of letting the government choose for you. And I think over time that will result in fewer conflicts. Um, so Robin, we have a question here. And since you talked about regulations, I thought maybe this would be one that you could tackle for us. Shouldn't, shouldn't school choice movements seek to recognize the inherent right of parents to educate their children as they see best? If we're calling for regulators to define curricula, aren't we still treating school choice as a privilege granted by those regulators? So I'm not entirely sure what the question means if it's insinuating that through school choice, we're going to choose the curriculum or what can be in that. Most laws, and I can only speak for Utah though, we are not allowing regulation on the curriculum, the creed, the you know, whatever it is that comes forward from the different providers and the private schools, that will not be regulated. So when a parent goes out to choose that, they're choosing it for the reasons of what they like about what that culture is, what that private school's curriculum is, what that online curriculum is, what that textbook is, whatever it is, they, the state is not going to be allowed to interfere with that curriculum in this, in this sphere with this, um, school choice option and taking your dollars as a parent to choose and customize your child's education. Right, Jenny or Mike, do you wanna weigh in on that one? Cause that's a pretty big topic. Yeah, and why we why Robin was responding, I like pulled up our definition again of curriculum, which you think I would have it memorized with how much curriculum I buy on our ESA program with my kids. But in Arizona, with the statute and the rule curriculum, means a course of study for content areas or grade levels, including any supplemental materials, that's important, 
required or recommended, we added that later, by the curriculum approved by the department. And so one of the, one of the challenges um, that parents on the ground experience as it relates to definitions, and that's something I touched on very briefly before, is that when the laws are passed, um, certain items or categories may be listed and saying, hey, these are approved items, right? Tuition, uh, curriculum, therapies. Well, then uh, the next question kind of comes, well, what, what does that mean, right? And rules or other codes tend to define those things. You'll, you heard me say earlier that I'm all about flexibility. I'm all about flexibility as it relates to the definitions. And that's because of something um, that we are categorizing in the education entrepreneurship space, right? And Mike's written a lot about this. There are things four years ago that I would never have thought existed in the curriculum space, right? Just incredible online platforms, things like uh, Synthesis, OutSchool, Curious Cardinals, just to name a few, things I never would have thought would have existed that maybe don't fit under some of these definitions or didn't fit at some point, which is why some of those definitions have uh, shifted or expanded. So it's really important that, you know, we have some, some sort of framework, but that we don't make that framework or those definitions um, so narrow that we remove all room for new options, new educational programs, new types of curriculum or curriculum being something completely different uh, than what we tend to think, which is, a textbook with a teacher's guide, with a workbook, with a video that goes along with it. So uh, that just circles us back to, you know, the flexibility conversation um, and even maybe opens the door for more conversation about how, you know, these programs really spur incredible education entrepreneurship. Yes, I will just um, add one bet last bit. First, to acknowledge the question, it's a delightfully Cato Institute question. Um, and God bless y'all. I mean that with all, all the love, uh, all the love in my heart for, for y'all. Um, ultimately, these programs have to create a set of allowable uses for the dollars, right? That says, this is an education savings account program. This money has to be spent towards children's education. And so you can't just go out and take your ESA and buy a Ford Fiesta or whatever. It's like when you, if you have an HSA with your health insurance and you go to CVS, you can swipe and get Tylenol, but you can't get a bottle of Jack Daniels. Someone had to sit down and draw definitions around one that includes Tylenol, but excludes Jack Daniels, right? And so that's the efforts here. And I think Jenny is exactly right that many states have been quite capacious in trying to be as expansive as possible and saying there are lots of different ways to organize curriculum. There are lots of different things that can be connected to it. There are lots of different paths that students take and therefore the things that they need will be different. But at the end of the day, for one of these programs to exist, you do ultimately have to define uh, these terms. Personally, I don't think that that is an infringement on any sort of parental rights. Um, uh, I don't think that that's sort of in any way questioning that parents are, you know, the primary educators of their children or any of those things. And simply saying, if we're going to create an education and savings account program, we have to define the things that are allowable to spend under that and, and not. It's just the kind of way it's got to go. Well, Mike, you, I'm going to come right back to you, so um, don't don't pause too long there. Your pluralism comment struck a chord, and there's several questions about that. One of them says, what about teaching things that bind us as a country, the melting pot subjects? And as director of research at EdChoice, I know that you're going to have a great answer for us. 
I think pluralism is the thing that binds us as a country, <laughs> right? Like that's actually read the first amendment, right? There's probably no more pluralist statement of any founding document of any nation than our, our first amendment. So I think uh, embodying that spirit in our institutions brings them to life. It doesn't just say that they're freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of assembly and a separation of church and state and all of those things. Um, uh, or not, not exactly separation of church and state. I always, the legal beagles pull me up on the, the exact wording of the establishment clause and the free exercise clause. Forgive me. I want to make sure to be clear there because again, that I'll get roasted for that one. But anyway, that's a, that's a sort of the, the, the classic sort of pluralist statement of, um, that, that the, the government's not going to put their thumb on, on the scale for, for one or the other. So I, I can't think of anything more American than a commitment to pluralism. And that's, uh, being able to live that out for young people and see it reflected in their institutions, I can think of no better way than to 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 inculcate those democratic values. Yeah, and I heard um, Robert Enlow recently on um, I forget which podcast he was on, but he was talking about the studies that even you know if that is a concern of yours, private schools tend to you know people that come through private schools oftentimes have more of a melting pot, I suppose you could say. They tend to be more involved in the democratic process, more welcoming of varying, varying um, diverse viewpoints and things like that. So I, I don't think that it's, I don't think there's much evidence that the public school system has improved upon that, I guess we'll say, as our Cato Battleground map shows. <laughs> um, okay, so now still on the pluralism, and anybody can take this one. Religious schools and employees are not pluralistic in their training or belief systems. Furthermore, employment at religious schools can be discriminatory and exclusionary. You cannot include equally the number of religions that exist. How do you measure pluralism? I can keep taking swings at these if anybody else wants to. <laughs> Go so, for it, Mike. I mean, <laughs> we, can, we can make this the pluralism show. Um, yeah, just because organizations aren't internally pluralistic doesn't mean that allowing people to choose them is an affront against pluralism, right? You could have like all women's colleges or historically black colleges or others. They might not necessarily be as diverse or pluralistic within them, but having them as choices for people to have is pluralism. So it's not like think of religious pluralism. We don't have to say that every religion has to believe everything, right? No, internally, they're not pluralistic, but pluralism is the ability to choose between them. So I think that, yeah, I, I don't necessarily see a conflict there. If you, if, if an institution is believes things that you don't believe, don't participate in it, right? Like that's, I think a really important thing. And it, and it actually touches on some, some things that we've already heard today that is always worth repeating anytime we talk about these programs, okay? No one has to participate in them, right? No one is forced to, to participate in them. No one is forced to attend a school that's teaching things that they don't want to teach, right? Like these are all active choices that people are making. Um, and so I think that that's something that's super important. We can't necessarily always say that about the traditional public schooling system, right? If you're zoned to attend a school and 51% of the people who vote for the school board want it to teach something, that's what it's teaching, right? You might be in that 49% 
and you're going to have a bad time. You could be a religious minority. You could be a racial or ethnic minority. You could just be a sort of intellectual minority. Um, and that's not going to be fun for you. Whereas in these cases, you can actually choose if you are part of that minority group or part of the majority group or part of any group. That's the beauty of these programs being universal. You have the opportunity to, to choose those things and ideally choose from a variety. Now, look, I'll put my hand up that no, not every single religion will be reflected in, in all of the schools. That is true. This is being done by human beings and there are limits to our faculties. Now, to be honest though, with some of the growth of things like micro schools and hybrid homeschools and others, very small groups of people can come together, um, even if there's only five or 10 families and, and actually put together a school or a sort of quasi school co-op or, or whatever. So I think there actually is a possibility to reflect an incredible diversity in the types of schooling options that are available to people. And again, I just think there's no better way to, to exercise this American pluralism than to give people the choices between all of these different school types. Well, thank you, Mike. Another good segue you're giving me here. Another question is, what can we expect in terms of a supply side response of service providers, especially private schools, when universal ESAs are fully implemented? And maybe Jenny could take a first crack at this, given that Arizona's had its longest. Yes, absolutely. I would love to. And we also um, just launched something in Arizona called the Innovation Hub with the express desire to help those education service providers, those private schools launch better, launch faster and connect with their customers because we're aware of the fact that there are a lot of families out there, um, this is a big part of what we do every day, who come to us saying, this is what I'm looking for. I want a school, I get this one a lot, that is really amazing at serving children who have dyslexia very, very common request. Um, and that meets these other kind of, you know, guidelines that I have. A lot of times it's, you know, that's not 20 miles away, that the tuition is X, Y, and Z. And there are instances where we have to say, you know what, that particular type of school with all these different things that you want, it doesn't exist yet. <laughs> it doesn't exist yet. And so we are doing everything we can on the ground to encourage new schools and new service providers. A lot of times that starts uh, with a micro school, with um, you know a, a parent or a family or a group of parents or families coming together and saying, all of our kids share this kind of thing in common. We want to create something from the ground up and serve uh, you know our our kids, but then expand it to serve even more students. So we're trying to cultivate that environment here in Arizona. There are a ton of new micro schools launching in Arizona. There's even some different organizations um, that have done successful programs out of state, uh, like Primer and KaiPod, that are coming to Arizona to serve our students, which is very very exciting. We cannot have too many options like in the spirit of this you know pluralism conversation the more the merrier if you can dream it if you want it we want you to launch it here in arizona and in all these other states that have these esas because families they need choices and maybe what's worked for years for a family all of a sudden when the child hits middle school or high school 
isn't working anymore. We want them to have a variety, a menu of different options, places they can go, ways they can educate um, their children. So we are, are starting to see that supply side catch up with the demand. It's only been six months. This fall is the first uh, beginning of a school year that we have universal ESA. Of course, last year it was already, you know, late September when it passed. So we didn't see as many families switching, but we're very hopeful that we'll continue to see the supply side uh, increase. And I think it's a really important area for, uh, you know, private philanthropy to consider what are the ways that you can help fuel some of these fantastic leaders that are looking to launch really innovative um, school models or expand existing seats in their private schools so that we can meet that demand. Colleen, could I, could I share something kids, Yeah, I was going to come to you next and ask you if you're seeing that in Utah too. Yeah, I mean, what I'd like to share is that before this live and past, there's a tremendous amount of innovation. There's just like this new energy in the education movement. We have a lot of micro schools that have come into play in the last couple of years here. We, If you ever jump on a homeschool Facebook page, um, you'll be amazed at what these families are discovering. They have discovered so many ways to create co-ops and find resources. And all of this actually exists, but much, much more is coming. We're in this new frontier and these school choice laws are going to help accelerate this frontier even more. Um, you know, I don't think that we can even imagine the types of innovative education providers and curriculums and school models that are gonna come forward. And so I will just say it's already out there. We're going to spur it on. And when I jump back into what I was talking about in my presentation, is that we need to find a way to bring this together. What Jenny's doing, I love, but we need to bring that marketplace together. I don't know that parents ever thought about, wow, you know, I could get therapies. Um, I'm looking for a great uh, tutor or a piano teacher or whatever. When we can create this marketplace, it just gets more and more exciting. Those marketplaces need to be transparent. They need to be public. It's already out there. We've got to pull it together and then spur on the innovation. Absolutely. So don't forget, you can submit questions via our website, Facebook, or YouTube, and on Twitter using the hashtag CatoCEF. And we have a question that is from Twitter. I think it's our first Twitter one. It says many, oh, it's quoting when I said, many ESAs include a rollover provision where any unspent dollars can be used in future years. And then the question is, it's widely acknowledged ESAs won't cover full cost of tuition at most privates. So where are these dollars to rollover coming from? And um, I'll jump in on this first since I was the one that brought up the rollover, but it's actually not necessarily the case that it doesn't cover private school tuition because a lot of private schools are not very expensive. I think people have this idea that it's, you know, the twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 a year is what the private schools are. And that's just not what it is, especially if you look at Catholic schools or Christian schools or the micro schools, small secular schools, there's a lot of lower cost options. And when you add in people doing customizing their education of their kids at home, then that's not very expensive at all. So you can pick and choose the courses that you're interested in that you can't do at home. As a homeschooler for us, it was typically science and foreign language and probably should have been math. Uh, but then you can, you know, you'll have extra funds that you can use as, you know, when the kids get older, classes get more expensive. You can use them for dual enrollment in high school and, there's just a wide variety and some, like I'd mentioned, even let it roll over to 
um, after graduation for a year or two of college. So the opportunities that an ESA presents for families is just tremendous. And uh, I don't know if any of you have anything to add to the uh, ESAs won't cover the full cost of tuition idea. Yeah, I can add a little bit to that since I, you know, directly work with parents that are going, I want to go to this school. Should I do an ESA or should I, you know, utilize our state's um, tuition tax credit scholarship options? And we, we do walk families through those choices depending on where they live, where they want to go, what their, um, their needs are, and if their child has a diagnosis, all of those things. The first thing I want to say is that I have yet to see a... Um, a private school maybe who at the high school level, let's just say their tuition is slightly over what an um, ESA award amount is, say, well, that student can't come here. These private schools are going out and they are doing all sorts of fundraisers. They're doing special events. They're partnering with philanthropies to bridge the gap if there is one at certain stages for these students. Um, so that's the first thing I want to say. I think it's really, a, you know, misunderstood uh this whole area of the ESA thing is that somehow, you know, because the tuition is, you know, $1,000 more, $500 more or whatever, that somehow that means that student just can't go to that school. That is not what I've seen in practice. Um, but but just to the whole idea of, <laughs> of uh, the economics of it all, right? Like it, it really just... It just depends. It depends on the family. It depends on their needs and the rollover. So in Arizona, I'll give you an example for my own children. For one of my kids, we have had some ESA funds roll over um, each year for that student. That happened to be the student who we were customizing their education and, and we weren't utilizing dollars for very specific educational therapies. For some of our other kids for a period of years, because we needed to spend those dollars very early on, on some very specific educational therapies, we were using the whole ESA amount those entire years. So then for that other kiddo, the funds rolled over a little bit, which was really awesome because then when that student got a little bit older, we were like, oh, this student now needs, you know, X, Y, and Z. Maybe they need a computer or another piece of technology to access these online classes. We were able to steward those dollars um, and manage them well for seeing the needs of our students. Um, and that happens a lot in the special needs community too, where families say we re need really intensive therapies, let's say in the elementary level, and we may not need those you know, further down the road. So ESAs and the whole idea of rolling over funds is pretty amazing because it actually incentivizes parents to spend those dollars wisely, to plan, to prepare, to project their students' future needs. And one of the reasons why I love Arizona's ESA program, because there's so many people who are super focused on um, kids going to college, right? After graduation, which they should be. In Arizona, you're allowed to utilize your empowerment scholarship and the dollars that you have managed wisely for your student for four years after your child graduates. So that's another reason why I think states and, and dare I say it, universities should be looking at these programs as incredible ways for families to be incentivized uh, to spend the dollars well so that they have a good head start. They're not taking out loans to start their child's college education. It certainly incentivized our family to make sure that we're managing those dollars well um, and that we're using them in the ways that our children really need. Right, and as you had mentioned before, it's still less per pupil than would be spent on them if they were in the public school. So people might hear that and think, oh, it's this big giveaway to them, but it's still saving taxpayers money. So that's, you know, something to consider, definitely. 
Okay, another question. A large portion of ESAs, at least in Arizona, according to the superintendent's office, are going to students who have never been in public schools. What is already being done and how can awareness be raised for families who could benefit from ESAs coming from public schools? So when I first read this, I thought it was going to be one of the ones people complaining, saying, oh, these are going to people in private schools already. But but no, this questioner wants to know, like, how can we make sure the kids who need these programs in public schools are aware of it? So Jenny, do you want to maybe tell what you guys have already done? And then Robin, what you're working on moving forward? Yeah, that'd be great. And, and Robin actually hit on a lot of this too when she talked about the really um, excellent plan that Utah has in place. A lot of it involves the grassroots, but then also the direct marketing. So, you know, marketing costs money, even grassroots costs money, costs people, costs time and all these different things. But at Love Your School, obviously we're doing everything we can to make sure that everyone across the state knows about the Empowerment Scholarship Account Program, knows that it's an option, um, and then they can decide accordingly, right? If it's the best choice for their family or if they'd like to do tax credits or do a charter school or a district school or homeschool. But we want them to know about it and we want them to have that choice. So we do just, a ton of events. I never would have thought that uh, we would do as many online events that we've done, but that's been really successful for us is a lot of online events. We also very strategically utilize social media. Um, Utah's a great state that's done this as well. I think other states really need to work on um, social media. That's a key piece of your implementation strategy. Um, utilize influencers, utilize people in your communities or across your state um, that are really strong on social media and have them help get the word out, whether they're utilizing your state's ESA or not, making sure that families know that it's out there and it's a choice. In-person events are also fantastic, depending on the community. Um, a couple a couple of years ago, I think we're gonna do some more now because it's so hot in Arizona right now. We did a ton of like shaved ice trucks, right? Like we just rented out a shaved ice truck, we put it on the corner, we said free shaved ice and uh, so many people came through. I've done pop-ups outside of grocery stores and passed out sodas, whatever it takes to make sure that families know that their options are out there. We tend to think that everyone thinks like us, right? Like we're involved in the policy, we're on the ground, we know all the details of these programs. But if you went to, you know, my favorite local coffee shop, which I do wear my Ask Me About ESA pins everywhere I go, and you said, hey, everybody in here, raise your hand. How many of you know about our state's ESA program? maybe two, three out of 50 people in there would probably raise their hand and tell you that they know what it is. There is so much work to be done uh, with marketing, with the grassroots, um, and that's a key piece of the implementation. But those are just a few things that Love Your School do uh, that we do here on the ground. And I also, if there's anybody out there that's looking for ways uh, to reach more families in their state, would love to just help your, your nonprofit or your organization just brainstorm um, some ideas and some things that you could do that are creative to help reach more families. Yeah, so I will share that, um, you know, a lot of what Jenny said, I'm going to go back to my presentation and your resources. You've got to have a voice established. That voice needs to create a coalition. And I'm going to back it up just a little bit and let you know that we started this with the legislative process. So clear back before the bill even hit the floor and the legislative session started, we started to coalesce our movement. And then during the session, we coalesced that movement. So the grassroots grew, grew, we collected names, we already have a large database, and we already worked together as a coalition. So then when phase two came along for implementation, we had a, a lot of work already done. But 
I can't emphasize more. All of you can do this. You've got to have a voice. You've got to go out and fundraise. You've got to put a strategy together. So we did raise a tremendous amount of money. We will be doing direct marketing. We will be doing grassroots. We talk to everyone and anyone like Jenny, like all of the states across the nation to uh, pick their brain on the best ideas. What is the most uh, successful ways to get out there and reach these groups. And again, you've got a lot of networks in your state. You've got homeschool Facebook groups. You've got groups that are involved and worried about the public education system that have formed. You've got so many people on the ground already. So you need to put a good grassroots plan together, bring them all under together. the tent and they can, they can spread the word for you. Excellent tips. Jenny, do you know, one question asks, if you know what proportion of ESAs are being utilized by special needs children in Arizona? Um, I'm not sure what the latest number is, although I think that the quarterly report, the quarterly report. is on the Arizona State Board of Education website. They have to report that every quarter. And that information can probably be found in there. I haven't, I don't have the number off of the top of my head, but you can also reach out to me and I can try to help you locate that number. Don't forget, you can submit your own questions via our website, Facebook, YouTube, and on Twitter using the hashtag CatoCEF. Um, got a question here. It says, everything I've heard so far about ESAs only talks about state funding. Do any states allow the local property tax monies to, quote, follow the student, unquote? Um, we already touched on that a little bit, but uh, Mike, do you have any any knowledge of any states that use any local funding in their ESAs? Or no, any as far as I know, really? they're all... Yeah, as far as I know, they're all just state dollars. Your local dollars, if you think about how you're assessed for your property tax, that sort of millage rate is applied to your property and it goes to your local public school district. That that keeps going that way, regardless of um, how many students are in that school or not. And federal dollars continue to go to school. So neither, if we think about generally speaking for those on the call, you know, a good rule of thumb, though it varies greatly, is it's about a 45, 45, 10, about 45% dollars come from local property tax, about 45% come from state funds, and about 10% come from the federal government. There's 14,000 school districts in America, so it's going to vary, but that's a good rule of thumb to go off of. Almost exclusively, these programs that we're talking about are that 45% coming from the state. But as Jenny um, raised, which is also important, it's not even that full 45%. So it's like 90% of 45%. That's actually how much money we're talking about in a lot of these places. Now, some the programs have been funded differently and numbers are, are higher and it works differently. But as far as I know, there aren't any um private school choice programs that have anything uh that, that touch local property tax dollars right right charter schools are different charter schools it actually does oftentimes pull the the local and federal so you think that would make districts like private school options better but i haven't seen that so we'll see okay here's another interesting question Developing social skills is an important part of K-12 education. Taking courses here and there undermines the schoolyard experience. How do you measure that cost of fragmented learning? And um, Jenny is a longtime homeschooler and ESA user. Maybe you wanna jump on this one? Yeah, I'd love to. I was just taking some notes on that. Um, if there's one thing that I have heard about constantly um, as a homeschooling parent for almost nine years, 
I mean, I think my parents even brought this up very early on, if I'm being honest, is, you know, how are we going to socialize the kids? Like, how are, how are they going to um, have, you know, the experiences that help develop them and cultivate them? Well, as someone who graduated from public school, kindergarten through 12th grade, right here in Arizona, I would say that it's... Um, we have to be honest that not all school socialization ends up somehow being this very joyful, beneficial, flourishing experience for students. There are a lot of very difficult, um, dare I say traumatic without overusing the word experiences that I had in the public school system. Yes, I had amazing ones, but I also had some pretty dramatic experiences in the public school system also. Um, and there are experiences that, you know, I have decided that I would like to keep my children from potentially having those same experiences. Not everyone has that, that's fine. But to act like that every socialization experience or um, schoolyard experience is somehow beneficial for a child, I think is, is false and error. And then the idea of fragmented learning, well, that's kind of framing the question in a certain way, right? Like this idea of like fragmented learning is somehow bad. Whereas like if we have this um, very clear path for a student that that's somehow better. I fundamentally disagree with that. Um, my children are so different, each and every one of them. Uh, four out of five of them qualify for the ESA program as children with learning disabilities, even though some, uh, three of them share the same diagnosis. What they need for that diagnosis is very, very different. So I don't see this idea of unbundling or maybe taking a class at the public school, but they're doing something online and then going somewhere else. I don't see that as fragmented learning. I see that as the future. <laughs> I see that as uh, something that we should have been doing a long time ago, rec recognizing the unique needs and the individuality of our students and what they need. And that's a very good thing for our families. Absolutely. Um, someone likened it to me to, you know, Netflix. You know, first we had black and white TVs and then color TVs, but you had three channels and then you had cable, but you still had to be sitting in front of that box at that time. And now with streaming services, you can be, you know, anywhere you want and watch your favorite show, whatever time you want. And, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone feels like it's fragmented their TV viewership. So, um, so we're Well, it's also kind of funny too, TV. that there is, Oh, I was just going to jump in and say that I think it's also kind of interesting that there, because I was just, I, I don't know if you could see me on the screen, but as Jenny was saying, I think, I think the most recent statistics from the NCES say something like 25% of kids report being bullied every year. So, I mean, like the schoolyard experience for like one in four kids is deeply unpleasant um, and mm -hmm. we should probably think about them. Um, but I, I also think that there's this interesting kind of goalpost moving that often happens because people criticize things like homeschooling by saying, oh, well, because kids have no interaction, they're never outside their, their home, whatever. And then we say, okay, cool. Well, now there are these programs where that can happen. And, and so, well, now it's, well, it's fragmented or whatever. It's like, yeah, because it's fragmented because they're going to the schools that you wanted them to go to. So what are we talking about here, folks? And I think it's like, it actually does give this wonderful opportunity to participate in plays and band and sports and all of that stuff that maybe other programs that were only just for the quote unquote educational side of it. Like there are so many, these create so many wonderful opportunities for collaboration, for community, for, for all of those things. So I think that, yeah, I, I sort of, like Jenny, I think I take like the exact opposite away from uh, potentially the way our, our, our interlocutor thought about that, right? I think there's an incredible opportunity to um, create nurturing, thriving, uh, nurturing environments where kids can thrive.
Absolutely. My kids have done tennis, cross country plays at our public school, and it's been a great experience for them. And I don't think they ever felt fragmented. Um, so Robin, what are you seeing there in Utah in terms of public schools and their interest in participating in ESAs in whatever form they're able to up there? Yeah, I think that's a pretty exciting aspect to talk about because I think we look at school choice and we automatically think we're running away from the public system and we don't want anything to do with it anymore. And that's not true. Our branding includes the term find your fit and every child is different. And there are parents and families that do really love aspects of their public school, while there are others who want to move entirely away from it and customize it in different ways. And we need to respect that. So in Utah, the law allows public schools to be providers in a couple ways. They can be a literal provider. They can offer things like courses, um, classes, after school programs, clubs, different things like that, or they can um, be a part-time provider. So our law allows them to take half of the scholarship where a parent could say, my child's gonna go to the public school half day and the other half day, I'm using the rest of the scholarship to customize and fill in the other pieces of their education. And you could see this being beneficial, first of all, to answer that question of someone who actually thinks that public school socialization is good. We can all debate that, but if you think that, you can have it. And also you can, if you're a parent who said, you know, I really want to spend more education time with my students, my child, I wanna play an integral role, but I'm afraid of teaching the biology class and the math class and some of these others, then great. You can partner with your public school to receive some of these courses or any courses you choose, and then you can customize the rest of it. I think it's such an exciting aspect. We're really, we need to stop looking at choice in the old fashioned way where we're thinking it's a private school only and the tuition is gonna be much higher than the scholarship, blah, blah, blah. Let's look at the innovation that's happening and all of the things that we can bring to the table to really meet the needs of the student. It's really one of the most exciting times that we're living in and watching these play out in states and see how they shake out. It's, it's a very exciting time. Absolutely. For the people that have been in the movement for a long time, I feel like it must be like watching your child grow up. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly they're launching into, I don't know, adolescence or adulthood or something. So we have a, an interesting question. I had said that we weren't really going to get into the politics of, of any of it. And this sort of does, but in a way that I think that we can still address. In Texas, the biggest obstacle to getting the ESA school choice legislation through the state house are the Republican members who fear the loss of funds to the local school districts will have dire economic ramifications in small rural communities. How can we address this concern? So maybe Mike, we'll start with you and then both Arizona and Utah have a lot of rural areas. So maybe you guys would wanna you know, chime in a little bit. We are running out of time. We got about five minutes left. Well, I'll be very brief. I just think ESAs are an incredible opportunity for rural communities um, where you have issues so much in Missouri, where I'm from, you know, you can, you can pull data from the state department of education and look at course offerings, for example, in so many small rural school districts, just, they don't have the critical mass to all math, critical mass to offer math. I shouldn't have tried to put those back to back with one another, but they, they don't have the, the, the necessary number of students. If you want to have an AP biology class or a physics class, or you want to teach Mandarin or something like that, um, it can be very challenging for small rural communities to have enough students that are interested in that, to hire a teacher or others. ESAs 
help solve this problem, right? Small groups of people can come together and you can have um, folks in relatively isolated areas with access to some of the best coursework on the planet. Um, I think if there are worries about depopulation, economic development, all of those things where people say, hey, listen, you know, we have to leave this place if our kids are going to get a better education. No, you actually don't. You can stay here. Um, things like micro schools or hybrid homeschools, very small numbers of families we're not talking about. I get this used to be a knock on school vouchers or tax credit scholarships where you'd say, well, at least a critical mass need to be able to come together to form a school. That's not necessarily the case anymore. All of these innovations that are taking place. So I actually, again, I'm sort of flipping around a lot of these questions. I actually think that ESAs are a tremendous opportunity to solve serious problems that schools and rural communities have had and problems that families and students in those schools have had as well. Yeah, and I'll jump in really quickly um, in the last few minutes here and just echo a lot of what, uh, what was just said. So essentially we need to focus on the students, okay? Arizona's had ESA for 10 years. We have a lot of families in rural communities utilizing an ESA and they're doing so because that is what's best for their student. So I know we always kind of say this and we don't mean it in a, you know, kind of a sassy way, but for those public schools in rural communities, and there are many of them that are doing an absolutely fantastic job. They are a core piece of that community, um, employment and otherwise, families are gonna stay with those public schools because those families are happy and they're getting a wonderful education for their children. But there are students out there who do not fit even those wonderful schools and they need to have the options and the opportunity to do something different. Um, we have a video up of an amazing family in Rio Rico which is down by the border here in Arizona. And um, the, the parent is actually a former public school teacher. And she talks about the decision to put her son onto an ESA and the doors that it's completely unlocked for him, even though they do have a great public school in their area. That's what we need to be thinking about. Not just those schools, but those students that need something different and we need to give them that opportunity. And then I'll just quickly circle Amen. back to what I was I'll just circle back to what I was saying before, and that is make them part of the marketplace. When the school gets to be part of the marketplace, that's gonna help solve the problem. Absolutely. So the last question, and we're down to about a minute. I'm the founder of a network of education entrepreneurs in Kansas. We don't have ESAs in our state yet. What do you recommend would be most helpful for us to do while we wait for school choice policy? And Robin, you've been involved for a while before ESAs were there, so. Any like 30 second tip? That's a big policy question, right? Like get your advocacy org form, get your coalition formed, bring in all the stakeholders and start working on it. Start talking to your legislators, educating them, start talking to your community leaders, you know, just uh, there's a lot of work to be done. Prepare the way and get that policy crafted and move it forward. Right. And there's there's a lot of private philanthropy out there that's helping. There's YAS Prize, the Vela Education Fund and others. So, you know, search for things like that. Thank you so much to the panelists and to everybody who came and submitted questions. We had a lot of questions and I'm sorry that I was not able to get to all of them. The video recording of the event will be available on the Cato's web on the Cato Institute's website at Cato.org. So please check it out if you missed any of it. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And definitely this is something that we're gonna have to keep coming back to because it's a big topic.